Hello and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krall, and you're listening to episode 115 of the Imagineer Podcast. Today's podcast episode is going to be very special and very exciting because not only, if you're listening to this live, is it the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World, but my special guest today is Disney legend Tony Baxter. Tony spent over 40 years at Walt Disney Imagineering and really defined the second generation of Imagineers, bringing us such classic attractions as Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, Indiana Jones Adventure, Star Tours, Journey into Imagination, not to mention Disneyland Paris, and so many other incredible creations. Tony's reputation and name speaks for itself. He has done so much for the Walt Disney Company and has brought us so many iconic attractions and lands and parks that we know and love today. So in this episode, I get the chance to chat one-on-one with Tony about his career at Walt Disney Imagineering. He shares some really amazing advice for anyone looking to become a Walt Disney Imagineer. And to be honest, it's really incredible career advice for anyone in any field. And we have a lot of fun talking about his many projects that he worked at at Disney. Before we get started, I do want to give a very special thank you to our sponsor, WW Magazine. You can subscribe to WW Magazine by clicking on the link in the show note of this episode or by heading to ImagineerPodcast.com. At the end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer podcast. When I started Imagineer podcast and compiled my list of dream guests, one name that jumped right to the top of the list was Tony Baxter. With over 40 years spent as an Imagineer, Tony's work defined the second generation of Walt Disney Imagineering, developing such iconic attractions as Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, Star Tours, Indiana Jones Adventure, Journey to Imagination. You all know the list of attractions he's worked on. Tony also served as an executive producer for Disneyland Paris and concluded his career as the senior vice president of creative development. For his work, Tony has been named a Disney legend, received his own window on Main Street USA, earned a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Themed Entertainment Association, and was inducted into the IAPA Hall of Fame. Needless to say, I am thrilled and honored to welcome Tony Baxter to Imagineer Podcast. Tony, welcome to the show. Wow, it's great to be here. I'm kind of relaxed now because I just got back from a whirlwind trip to Walt Disney World to support uh, Give the Kids the World, you know, down there. And uh, it was a lot of fun. That is such a great cause. I only wish I were closer to Orlando because I would be doing that event as often as possible. We support Give Kids the World in other ways through the show, but I, I saw some photos and videos from the event and it looked like it was an amazing time. Yeah, it really was. 
And uh, did you, I, I, we spoke about this a little bit earlier, but uh, before we started recording, but it's been your first time at Walt Disney World in a while. So did you get the chance to do anything yes. new? Uh, yes, <clears throat> I got to catch up. I got everything from Slinky Dog Coaster to, um, you know, the Ratatouille and Preview mode. And I hadn't seen uh, uh, Mickey's Runaway Railroad. So that was, those were all new. And then I got to ride, we had free ride time on Rise of the Resistance. And while I'd been on it out here, I hadn't been there. So we sated ourselves with three rides on, uh, on the ride. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. That's, that's, yeah, it's, it's certainly, I mean, it's probably not to show too much preference, but I've, I've shared with the listeners that Rise of the Resistance might be, it's definitely my new favorite attraction, favorite attraction of all time debatable, but it's, it's incredible. And I, I can't wait to get down and, and experience some um, Remy's Ratatouille adventure as well. Um, let's, let's kick things back by, by going way back. I like starting with origin stories and your story of working in Walt Disney Imagineering or becoming an Imagineer, I think is relatable for a lot of people who aspire to become Imagineers because so many Disney fans today or so many aspiring Imagineers are themselves Disney fans who grew up going to the parks and looking at Disneyland or Walt Disney World or the international parks and saying, how do they build this? Who builds this? How can I get to be that person? And I feel like your story is one of the first cases in Imagineering of that being true because you grew up literally down the street from Disneyland. Um, what were some of your earliest memories visiting Disneyland as a kid? And did, are there any particular things about the park that you remember kind of standing out and inspiring you to become an Imagineer? Yeah, well, at age seven, which would have been the most impressionable time, I had had one year <clears throat> of a TV show called Disneyland, which ran every Wednesday night. And uh, Walt would come on and either introduce an animated film or a live action or a true life adventure. But wedged in between all of that, he would show little teaser reels of this thing called Disneyland that was sort of organized like that TV show, which had four lands uh, that presented the different types of TV uh, material. And uh, this park was going to have that same organization. And the only thing in my little seven-year-old brain that I could relate it to was a, another park in California called Knott's Prairie Farm. And the big thing about going to Knott's was riding the train and getting uh, involved in a holdup and then riding the stagecoach and then going home with your little tube of glass tube of gold that you mined in their gold mine, which was, I think every kid in Southern California had these little glass jars. I just, <laughs> I'd used all my tickets there to get those because I think now the gold would probably be worth 10 times what it, what we, it was like 50 cents, you know, <laughs> gold. So um, I remember the uh, Peter Pan ride being uh, the one that I most uh, was absolutely obsessed with because I couldn't figure it out. I felt like we were floating. I, the idea of mechanisms above your head running on a track didn't compute. I just looked down and saw a city and then Neverland and whatnot below me. So I remember describing it to my grandma and saying, I think you fall off of uh, and, and drift down. I didn't think of the track going, you know, turning and going down. I just thought you floated off of this and then floated onto something down there. Um, that was incredible. And that was probably the biggest memory from that first trip until my parents said, oh, there was another one of those right around the corner while you were going on that. We were looking at this other one. 
And I said, what? And and of course it was a toad ride and they didn't tell me about it. (laughs) And so we went home with only doing Snow White and and, uh, Peter Pan. And so now I had this obsession that I had to get back there to find out what this Mr. Toad ride was. But that was interesting because that was one of the films Walt did show on TV, you know, because it wasn't a, a full length feature classic. So we had seen it on television. So Disneyland became you know, people talk about IP and one of the interesting things, obviously Fantasyland is um, obvious, but then in Frontierland, we had Davy Crockett's keel boats were in residence there. And so much of it was based on the stories like Zorro and whatnot that were a big part of the television era. And then Adventureland was um, the true life adventures like the African lion and so forth that were really part of going to school in the 50s and 60s uh, when the teacher would say when we come back from lunch we're going to have a Walt Disney True Life Adventure you'd go okay it's a holiday today and uh, then the fourth land was Tomorrowland which Walt had never done anything about the future so he threw you know the combination of the most nutty animator ever Ward Kimball together with Werner von Braun a space scientist out of uh, Germany and, and what came out were three episodes on man in space that uh, were absolutely, they were so well done that Eisenhower, who was president at the time, called well and said, can you send prints of that to run before Congress? Because you did more in those three episodes than we've done with all the bills before uh, Congress to get the public behind supporting the space program. So it was really instrumental because they showed not just the mechanics of space, but the excitement of being in space and how all the, the things that would kick a, a trigger a kid's imagination to think about all the things you could do in space. So um, Disneyland's opening was a, a very milestone thing in a year long lead up. So it wasn't like you know, the day I went, I mean, when I went in, I knew where to run, you know, I'd never (laughs) been there before, but you knew where to run. Yeah. Um, So it was, um, it was a a life changing thing. And of course it became the start of my obsession, which uh, became a career, you know, so. Yeah. That's, that's the dream right there for so many people. And I think you're right. The buildup was, was a crucial part of that anticipation and buildup of the opening of Disneyland as well. And I, love the fact that the two attractions that you mentioned, Peter Pan's flight and Mr. Toad's wild ride are still popular, still yeah. at Disneyland. Yeah. And it just is a, a testament to the strength of those, those attractions. And you've, you've developed quite a few of those as well, which we'll get to, but um, you know, the, a lot of people think about that idea of, of getting into Imagineering and, and, a lot of the Imagineers I've spoken with, some of them kind of land in a role after doing some work in college and maybe some post, post-college post work and find their way into Imagineering. But what I love about your story is that, which is similar to other Imagineers as well, is that you started by working in the parks and you actually worked, you know, scooping ice cream at Disneyland, which I think a lot of people know by now. But um, that, I think, is really valuable as a as an aspiring or future Imagineer. And... You know, just to have the chance to work in the parks. I know as a cast member, I learned a ton working in the parks. Yeah. And I'm curious, what did you learn from that role that well, helped prepare you for Imagineering? I think today you can actually find, like I taught a class that Imagineering was backing over at UCLA uh, in experience design. 
And so there, there's an aware, awareness now in the educational community that this is a legitimate kind of career, not just Disney, but they're, uh, the themed entertainment association of which I'm a member and I'm on their board for selecting award-winning attractions um, is made up of probably hundreds of different companies that are involved in creating experiences around the world. And we sometimes don't open our eyes to what's going on in Asia or uh, obscure parts of Europe even. Um, so I love sitting in on that because we see new rides and new attractions and new museum things from every corner of the world. But I think going back to my time, that wasn't a possibility. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were legitimate, you know, careers in like architecture and, um, uh, you know, graphic design and so forth that, that were sort of commercial arts, if you will. There was fine art. In fact, there was the whole, you know, revolution in the 60s where everyone was doing their own thing. And, that kind of art really didn't prepare you for anything other than, you know, <laughs> a beatnik or a hippie uh, lifestyle. But, you know, if, if you were seeking out a professional career, you were very limited. And so I tried those professional routes through architecture and then on into um, landscape architecture. And, and again, you have the pressure of your parents going, we want our child to have, a, you know, a, a legitimate you know, name uh, attached to his uh, profession. And so it was very hard on them when I decided it really wasn't working and that I wanted something freer uh, to move over to a school that offered theater design. And as I stumbled through all this stuff, I realized <clears throat> from a school standpoint, starting in architecture, moving to landscape architecture, ending up in theater design, that years later when I was working at Disney, I go, gosh, you know, we kind of do theater in a landscaped environment using architecture as the tool. Well, the component that was really critical to that is you prepare, you know, uh, young uh, graduates with a theoretical knowledge. And in fact, you know, as a parallel to that, Disney WDI Imagineering creates theoretical capacities for their ride. <laughs> yeah. But then there's the actual capacities that people deal with at the park. And what I think I learned in working there as an operator, which you probably got a inkling for too, is two things. What creates that lowered real capacity? Because there is no way to think about in a in a you know in a, a calculated way how people move or don't move and moving in and out of things and secondarily is something nobody grapples with which i call preferred capacity <laughs> let's say you have 2000 seats over here for a fabulous ride and 2000 seats over here in a theater for a 3d movie that's tired you know this one is going to be an hour long wait and everyone's going to look at that one and say, oh, my God, it's starting to fail because the seats are empty. So you have this, you know, uh, preferred capacity that no one's gotten a handle on how to deal with that. And I learned, I think, through my working at Disneyland, that a theater with a with a motion picture or an automatronic show should be geared down to far less, you know, preferred capacity than an attraction like Pirates of the Caribbean, which you couldn't build enough seats for it because the demand on that is so high. And I don't think there was enough science and certainly nobody in school talks about how you wrestle with that. And uh, 
you know, when the New York World's Fair closed and they brought the Carousel of Progress, which was designed in New York, I think a few years before you were born. Um, well, just about a few. <laughs> 4,000. Well, I remember it and being a kid that wasn't allowed to go because I was too young to go on my own. And we all thought there'd still be many, many more World's Fairs. And yeah. ironically, that was the last big Disney type style, you know, World's Fair. But the rides, because you got over 100,000 people a day at that fair, a ride like Carousel of Progress was geared up for 4,000 people an hour and every seat was filled. But you move that to Disneyland where your total attendance might be about 60, you know, thousand a day. And of that, there's like 10, 20 major rides that they're all divided to. So there is no way, if you think about it, if you decided those, divided those 60,000 between 10, that's only 6,000 people that, you know, would, would be even in the area of that ride. So um, it, it ended up looking like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't successful when in fact um, they had way over, you know, produced the demand for it. So I think when I got to an imagine, it got to my point in Imagineering, I don't want to say I was kind of, you know, a know-it-all, but since I had peers that were coming in that came right out of school and the whole idea of working at Disneyland wasn't a thing, uh, I had this, no, 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 that won't work. Um, no, we really need to do this. We need more, we need whatever. And so I think it, it gave me an edge over the generation that started with me in terms of the go-to guy, because he kind of had a working knowledge of it, you know? So I definitely think even today, you aren't going to find that aspect of it in any school teaching because it's something, and no one at Disneyland will tell you about it because they don't know either. And if you look at new rides, some of them, I feel they're not really aware on the ride how much more capacity they need. We can talk rides, we can talk at some of the others that the reason you've got a, a sellout instantly in the morning is we probably don't have enough spaces for all the people on that ride. You know? <laughs> and so those are the kind of things that I think young people really would benefit from, um, a, you know, in fact, Disney and, and companies would benefit from creating a uh, adjunct to school training and experience design that literally, you know, sends you down there for a hands-on immersion, if you will, in trying to, I mean, everything from trying to get 20 people in a pirate boat in 18 seconds, that's <laughs> not so easy if you want to be nice to them. Right. You know, and, and say, have a nice day. And you see the red light flashing that is, <laughs> it needs to be dispatched right now. So you have to like really learn a psychology of how to do that, how to get it. So the whole system is working and, uh, and also learn in your mind that certain things can be reduced in capacity uh, because they're, you know, a show like Lincoln or Hall of Presidents and they, they're great shows and they should maybe have one show an hour, you know, where you make a prestigious thing out of it saying on the hour, we invite you to visit the Hall of Presidents in New Liberty Square um, because then it becomes a special event and uh, they're so much more effective when you're a, in a big crowd that is in awe of it rather than sitting there with three or four people around you because the capacity <laughs> is so high that it can eat up all the demand immediately, you know? So yeah, that you would learn only by working there. It's true. And I love that third element, the, the you know, the theoretical, the 
operational and then the preferred (laughs) system. And yeah, I mean, there's, there is a lot that you learn in the parks, the operations, the, the psychology, I think is a, a huge component of it as well. Even, you know, an attraction like Kilimanjaro Safaris, I knew that I'm sure that Joe Rody and the team knew live animals would have some sort of an impact, but every single day, the animals were the number one sure. part of the experience that affected the actual ride capacity because they would decide to walk in the middle of the road or yeah. cross the path or just sit there for a while. And it was bound to happen every day without fail. And in operationalizing that and figuring out how to work with the animal care team to to make sure that the animals are encouraged to to make their way off the off the track is uh, important as well. But I, all that that you say resonates, and I think it applies to a lot of professions. Having that, you know, the theoretical side of it is important, but then having the the real practical experience, you learn a lot of those soft skills and the psychology and the pieces kind of click together that they they might not in just a classroom. They probably would not in in just a a classroom environment. Um, give you, I just want to comment on that. Too. Yeah. It brings it back to the everyday world. Let's say you were, you're dreamed as a child to become a car designer and you knew everything about designing cars and you could draw them amazingly well and all that, but you somehow were afraid and never learned how to drive. You know? <laughs> it's kind of that, that missing link, I think, arriving at a place that uh, you know, like Detroit or Disney, where you, your new new role is to do this thing, but you don't have any capability of knowing what putting the brakes on feels like, or any of those. What is the startup? What the, when you engage the engine? What are you listening for? All of those things that there's no class that teaches that. That is the school of uh, hard knocks or or just practical experience. You know, that's so true and such a, a great analogy as well. And the other part, I think that it. You know, it's important in just about any profession. And I feel like this is one Imagineer I have yet to really dive too much into, but I think you're probably the right person to ask about was your mentor, Claude Coates, because I find that mentorship is incredibly important. I want to start, though, just because I find it so almost odd or or, uh, amazing is really the right word that you happened to just by chance come across Claude Coates yeah. backstage one day, and then he ended up being your mentor down the line. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I've, you know, I've read and heard a little bit about that encounter, but how, how did that encounter with Claude Coates come about? And, and how did you ma- manage to get a, a backstage tour of Pirates of the Caribbean before well, it was even I open? <laughs> I was kind of uh, pushy in that regard. And <laughs> the uh, New Orleans Square Complex was open about a, you know, it opened in August and Pirates opened the following May, you know, March, I'm sorry. And uh, so, you know, at, at the cafeteria for employees was in the middle of all that, under the blue bayou, but above the pirate caverns sort of wedged in there. And so there were all these doors walking down the hall that say cavern scene A, you know, arsenal B and all that. And, and for someone that was obsessed like me, I mean, the first thing you'd do is you'd open the door and you'd stick your head in, you know, and, <laughs> and you'd look around and you'd close the door because you didn't want to get in trouble. And um, the tension of like not knowing grew and grew uh, so that around January, and this is like, you know, three months before opening, uh, we were coming out of the dining room and I just said, I'm going down that one that says Arsenal. I'm just going down to the bottom of the stairway to see what's there. And so I did that. 
And my friend says, you're going to be fired. You know, <laughs> we were just like hourly ice cream vendors. And I got to the bottom and I, I peeked because I could hear the, the soundtracks from the pirates in the prison. And of course, as I got a little bit around, I could see the fire flames and all the stuff going. There was no water. And so I got right out to the edge of the uh, troughway. And then I heard this voice and I expected it was going to be a security guy saying, hey, you know, you don't belong in here, get out. But it was Claude going, you really can't see it very well from there. Why don't you jump <laughs> down into the canal and I'll show you around. And the nicest man ever. And it turned out later that he had come over to get ice cream every day. And so in not recognizing me as Tony, he recognized me as the red and white stripe in little cat guy that you know serves ice cream and it was part of the pleasantry of his day to get that cone and they kind of i guess he and fred jerger would go over there and do that and then come back and um so he was sort of paying back a moment in his day that was pleasant you know so he gave me about an hour tour i got back to imagineer or to a, the ice cream thing and they docked me and i go i don't care you know it was well worth it <laughs> And then when I finally got to Imagineering, I'd worked with Claude for maybe a year or more in the, in the seventies. And I went home one day as you do, and there was books that they uh, sold on the pirate ride on it's a small world and various other things. And you'd kind of open them up to look again. And I'd always pointed out to people that there was a picture in the middle with Claude and Fred Jerger, Jerger in hard hats pointing and doing the whole art direction thing. And I said, oh, that's the guy that took me through. I didn't say that's Claude Coates because I didn't know. I never asked him what his name was. But as soon as I looked at it now, having worked with him for a year, I knew it was Claude. I could hardly wait to get to work the next day to play with it a little bit. Yeah. And say, do you ever remember? And yeah, he, he would give me the best ice cream cones when we'd go over there. And as he was saying this, he kind of went, no way. You know? <laughs> and suddenly he got the message that we had had this chance and yet very inspirational and uh, for all the right reasons encounter that could have just as easily been me being sent over to security and and you know terminated for breaking into a non i mean when that when they're not licensed for public uh you know uh, occupancy you you're literally violating the insurance codes and everything so yeah you know disney can get really tough on stuff like that so it could have gone that way, but it ended up going the best way it could possibly go. So. Very true. I mean, that's that's destiny for one, but also yeah. it, it's a sign of persistence. You really yeah. were. I mean, you were you were taking a risk there by walking yes. through that corridor, but yeah. it it paid but off. You kind of have case. to realize too that it, even without that peak, the word was out that this ride. You, we all saw the building going up and everything, and there'd been nothing like that. I mean, Rise of the Resistance is on the same scale as Pirates. Yeah. But at that time, we're talking dark rides. And probably the largest ride that had been built prior to that was the submarines, you know, which is underground. So it's really hard to tell what's really there. But uh, yeah, this one was pretty obvious. This is a giant, giant attraction. And uh, so I just couldn't hold it in anymore. I had to <laughs> satisfy that inkling, you know. But I didn't know while I was doing it with Claude that I was going to get into Imagineering. That just seemed um, not attainable. Because when you saw the scenes where Walt would uh, visit the Imagineering 
which may or may not have been at Imagineering because he often faked out sets over at the studio where they all sat around and he said, here I am at Imagineering. But um, anyway, it, it just seemed unattainable. They all seemed like personalities and, and uh, celebrities and all of that. So there's no way I would ever be a part of that. I'm a kid in Santa Ana who rode my bike to Disneyland um, and saved green stamps to get ticket books, you know, stuff like that. So anyway, so that on, on from there, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, again, very incredible. It's an amazing story. I wanted to dig into it a little bit, and I'm glad that I did. That's a pretty amazing story. Um, I'm going to jump coasts only because we're about to hit the 50th anniversary of, of Walt Disney World, and I know you had the chance to see it really in its, its earliest form. Um, yeah. What do you remember about the sort of developments and opening of Walt Disney World. Yeah, well, okay. So uh, when all that, the, the things I just described to you about with being with Claude in the pirate ride would have been in the uh, January of 67. So now we're in April of 71. So I am about 22. And uh, they, you know, I'd worked with Claude for, a year and a half, we really got on well. We just had a synergy. I used to say to people, in, you know, because Mark Davis and Claude Coates were kind of the two uh, geniuses that Walt had left in Mark's hands, the animation, and in Claude's hands, the design of the environmental rides. Um, but I preferred Claude because you worked with Claude. You kind of worked for Mark. Yeah. And I won't go into that whole story. But, uh, <laughs> I much understood. More yeah yeah and so uh we just had this thing going on and i think it it meant it was a two-way trust so when uh we were finished with the design and now it was time to put it into the park in florida he said well i, I dave burkhardt is overwhelmed on the on the Twenty Thousand leagues attraction and you've worked with me on the snow white attraction so uh i really would like you to go down to supervise the install on that and I'm very flattered, but I'm sitting there going, I'm 22 years old. I just got out of college. You know, I'm not capable of doing anything in terms of directing talent. So um, I was a little bit worried that I'd be sent home on the next plane after. So I remember the first two weeks in April, I just went, I would go in on Saturday and Sunday and photograph every single nook and cranny because I thought, I, I won't be of any value here. They'll just send me home. But it didn't work out that way. I ended up being the last one coming home at Christmas of 71. So I actually got to see uh, the park operating and then running into its first Christmas season. And, um, and uh, I think along the way, what I realized is even though being verbalizing, you know, authority was hard for me, uh, the fact that most of the workers were green when it came to doing art or theatrical they were home builders, plasters, uh, and to do rocks, to do uh, scenic paintings that looked like ancient Atlantis and whatnot, that was not in their, their cup of tea. So they were willing to sit down and listen to someone that was maybe half their age, you know? And so after a while, I started losing the fear I had of like, well, those are like my dad's age, those guys over there, you know, working on the, they'd have a cigar, they're chewing tobacco and, uh, I'm going, how do I walk up to this 
you know, guys group over there and say, Hey guys, you know, I'm going <laughs> to show you how to do a rock here. And I'm like this little skinny kid from California, but it worked out. And, uh, and they began to, I, I could tell they would go from like, Oh my God, here comes that know-it-all kid again to, Hey, uh, Tony, could you come inside? We've got an area we need your um, help on, you know? And then you, you knew, okay, this is starting to work. And so as a result, you know, um, after we finished the leagues, I was, I was the uh, pitch hitter trying to fix all the stuff that didn't work right for opening day and try and get it going before we hit the Christmas season, which they knew would be huge, you know? So it was kind of a neat, that was a great time. Definitely. It's, it's incredible to think about. And I, I love that you were able to sort of step up into at such a young age at to be in a position of of leading because i feel like that really did translate into a lot of the rest of your career and yeah. i'm sure it, it built from there um so I'm, I'm curious just sort of diving into that that leadership piece of it <clears throat> um you know it's it's i find it can be difficult to to lead teams of of creatives at times um so can you speak a little bit about sort yeah. of the the challenges of of working in a leadership role at Imagineering? Yeah, it's, it's not so much leading; it's almost more getting them invested in the same um, the same way you are. And I would go back again to that assignment down there. You know, Snow White was moving along. Dave Burkhardt had uh, was leading the effort on the subs, and I was assisting on that, so that was moving along. And then we got this panic call on Toad for Florida. They said the ride just isn't working and the people that were noting that it wasn't working weren't creative people they were more uh operators and stuff they said something is wrong with the ride uh, just doesn't look right and so i went in there and uh i you know at first i couldn't figure it myself and then again it was this kind of forced situation of putting you into a, a place where you had to call the shots and if you were wrong, you were really wrong. So it was kind of scary. But then I, I really, what I, what, it took me about two days of wandering through and going, why isn't this working? And then I realized that about half that ride was painted to look like you were outdoors, uh, looking at the facades of the little toad countryside and whatnot. Right. Well, they were all painted with a beautiful blue sky um, afternoon quality. And then you look at the term of those type of rides, which is called a dark ride. That means if you're painting a beautiful blue sky, what do you do with that blue sky when it gets up to the 18 foot level and you've now got air conditioning and a ceiling with all these fixtures hanging down from it? And it dawned on me, and this is where, you know, it dawned on me, it has to be at night. And that if there's any blue at all, it's like the last rays of sundown. Uh, and then immediately going black before it gets anywhere near 18 feet. And that filters into not the skies, but the green trees. The green trees can't go up to 18 feet and then be chopped off right. either. So once I got myself confident that I was on to the, the problem, I uh, rolled the dice and I had some painters come in and we repainted a tree. We made a lamp, uh, you know, a street lamp painted it on, it was all black light, and then took the sky down to where there was just a tiny horizon line so you could see the painted hillside uh, with a little bit of blue above it, and then it went to black immediately. 
And so we had that. And then we had the whole town square in the original blue. And I brought them all in and I said, unfortunately, we're going to have to repaint all of the, the things that go up to the heights because we've got to get rid of them before they get up there. You know, they've got to be <laughs> lost in blackness. And everyone's looking at me like, oh my God, you know, holy knowledge, you know, where, where did you get this holy knowledge? But it, I had to sit there alone with myself and analyze that problem and go, you know, go through the steps of the sky doesn't end at 18 feet you know, and trees don't stay green until 18 feet and then chop off. So you've got to have this lamp has to have some glowing orange leaves that it's illuminated around it. And then they've got to just get edge lighting and then vanish as they get far away. And the sky can give you a little profile of the hills, but then it's got to vanish before it goes up. And as soon as we did that, uh, everyone came in and goes, oh my God, thank goodness it's fixed. It looks great now and all of that. And so when you do something like that, you know, it's the only way you're building that ability to lead. You're building that lead by solving the problem. And even though it was probably more money than they wanted to spend, I don't know what they <laughs> thought I would do, wave a wand and it was <laughs> or redirect the lights so they were not pointed at the top or whatever, but um, it worked. So you know, you move up a step in the ladder where you're consulted now. Why don't we get him in? And when they had a problem on the treehouse in Adventureland, um, well, why don't you send Tony over there to look at that? And then the Jungle Cruise, I remember Mark was a cartoonist, Mark Davis, and he had painted all the rocks blue and green. And they were interesting if it was like in the Jungle Book movie. Right. But when you're in a Florida with, you know, essentially a jungle with real foliage and all that and very realistic elephants. And here you had these blue rocks. And so I had <laughs> to go in there and do what I'd learned in school, theatrically paint all those to give them a wash that brought them down and, uh, they were still blue, but within the range of what you imagine, you might find a bluish tinted rock somewhere in, in real life, you know. So uh, it was a series of things there where they were gaining a sense of I could be trusted and I was gaining a sense of I have good, um, you know, uh, solutions in my head. I was strengthening my own uh, resolve that, you know, my solutions were not just acceptable, but actually good ones. So, you know, by the time that it was time to send me home, uh, I think I, I had conquered that fear factor thing that when I arrived in April, they're just going to send me home, you know, because I'm just, I'm a very introverted, I thought. I've learned second, I've learned through Myers-Briggs and all the testing things that you get to do when you work for a big company, that I'm actually extroverted because introverted, extroverted doesn't mean what they teach you in school. It means- yeah. An extrovert goes to the outside to get um, feedback. An introvert depends only on their own um, intellect to guide them on things. And I think it's safer when you're doing communal art like Disney to get as much feedback as you can from uh, everyone you can. You don't, it doesn't mean you have to follow what they say, but if you know that person is very concerned about doing this, this person is very supportive about going, you can kind of look at all the possibilities of what a decision is going to make. Whereas if you just say, I'm going to make a call and you haven't really opened yourself up to uh, an, an extroverted approach to solving a problem, 
you can get in trouble, I think. So that was my, my, um, you know, learning. I think I, I went into it without any sense of what I've just told you, but coming out of it and looking back on it, it's easier to say, those are the reasons why it kind of clicked and that, uh, it made sense for me. Yeah, it, it makes sense. It's, and it's, you're right. I mean, you can only really connect the dots. Steve Jobs, I think, said they can only look the dot, connect the dots looking back, not looking ahead. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so that makes makes complete sense. There's there's a couple of things I definitely want to piggyback off of that you mentioned. And and one of them is, which is a little bit small, but it's the, that idea of realism. You talk about the color of the rocks on Jungle Cruise and it's in the Jungle Book might make sense to have them look blue or different colors, but then in an attraction environment like Jungle Cruise, you want it to look a little more realistic. Mm -hmm. And I find that the thing that has always attracted me to Disney as I've looked back and thought about what it is that I love most about Disney, it is that sense of placemaking in such a way that it is realistic, but playful at the yeah. same time. Um, so how do you go about, because you've developed so much, how do you go about creating places that feel real, but are still playful and fun, um, yeah. immersive environments. Well, you have, you've nailed a thing there that I think is, it was a Disney, um, you know, in our bailiwick alone, but I, I see things now in other parks that are coming very, very close to understanding this whole thing. And I think it is, you can create any kind of a fantasy environment if there's an integrity to what you're doing, but more importantly, that you apply the real world things that happen to, to surfaces and structures to that. So I'm kind of, maybe I'm, you know, not in the, the swing of the way certain people believe of it in it today, uh, taking castles and so forth to a little bit more fairy tale, you know, what would I say, extreme color and so forth. If you yeah. look back at opening day, Disneyland, opening day, the castle had stains on it like it was there for hundreds of years. And it was a shape, and I will use the castle at Disneyland as a great example, because it was a shape that was purely cartoon. There was no way you could fit into the upper areas. You even knew that as a six-year-old, that it was a fantasy, you know, that you'd have to be a little munchkin to be up in the top, <laughs> you know. And yet the way it had aged, the way the water had filtered down through the gargoyles and whatnot and, and stained the sides of it, this had to be in Anaheim for centuries, you know. So I think that, you know, like when you look at Big Thunder, it's essentially the rock work is there to disguise a bowl of spaghetti that is the track. And uh, I sit on the TEA board, so we see attractions all over the world uh, and review them for awards. And so often the effect of adding scenery to a roller coaster is that the roller coaster was there first, I'd say 95%. The roller coaster was there first and all the ornaments and rock work and everything are added on to the roller coaster. When we started Big Thunder, and I assume the Matterhorn designers who were before me, before my time, uh, it was never thought that way. The track had to follow what the rock work provided for it. So in the case of Big Thunder, there's a spiral butte. And the track has to go that way. And we had to fill in a gap with um, a trestle to make it even possible to do that, to get the train from here to here. And there's never a thing on that ride where you can get a feeling that the rocks were built up to con conceal the track. 
it's enough of the track is showing. And when we left it showing, we would build trestle work or whatever to create the bridges that feel like it went from this rock to this rock that were there. They're immobile because rocks are immobile. And so the brain is programmed to think that you don't mess with rocks. You don't mush them around columns. Like I, I could go to a million places where there's a wooden column that has rock work mushed up around it. <laughs> and there's that would only be possible if the rock was mud and you stuck the wood in it. You've got to chisel that rock away, you know, so that right. it looks like they chiseled it and they stuck in some wedges in there to hold the, the column straight and perfect. And I think when you look at that or you look at the Grizzly Peak or you look at um, Cars Land, which is the most crazy fantasy rock work with you know, Cadillac tail fins and hubcaps and everything growing out of the rocks. And yet your brain says every bit of this rock is absolutely real. Absolutely <laughs> real. Same with Pandora and uh, definitely now uh, Galaxy's Edge, which is some of the best rock work that's ever been done. So uh, whether it's rocks or it's the, the woodwork that we do, like in Fantasyland, uh, one of the tricks is always use larger lumber than you would use in real life because what that does it gives you a seven dwarfs quality you know that it must have been built by little tiny people because <laughs> the, the pieces are so big I, there's this but if you use little rock uh, little wood like you would see in a track house that's trying to do tudor architecture they'll go with underscale things and you right away go track house you know uh and so it's um it's just a a set of values that you begin to learn that these are all the things that go together to put the brain at ease to buying the contrived area as a real area. Now I believe it's a real area that has fantastic things in it, but it's definitely a real area. It's not a fake area with fake things in it. Uh, and I won't say Disney's done that everywhere. There's certain things that you know from the onset, it's just a playful environment. But where I think my forte was, was in, I mean, when you go through Indiana Jones, somebody said to me at Disneyland that when they got to the ride vehicle, so you haven't had the ride yet, you've just walked through a, a queue. They said to me, anywhere in the world where you would visit a temple, that much of it would be worth the admission, you know, that, and we could go home now. Yep. <laughs> but at Disney, after you've gone through this amazing uh, labyrinth through a temple, you are now um, going to go on a ride, you know? And so that only works if you're convinced all the way through that 45 minutes of queue that this is really happening to you. And so all the, the things we apply to that, that, that do that and make it look absolutely like you were in India in the deepest jungle, exploring something that nobody has set foot in before Indiana Jones was there, you know, is, you know, I think the, something that you don't often get the public able to describe it. I think the best I've heard, and I've heard it twice, when we opened Big Thunder and when we opened Indy, uh, different, obviously different people, but they said, it is as if they just chopped back some of the foliage and revealed something that was there all the time. So it wasn't a scar on Disneyland. It wasn't a ruination of the jungle or the frontier. It was something that was just there, but we couldn't see it. You know, and now they've cleared away enough stuff so you can see it. So that to me is the best uh, compliment, you know, that you can get. 
That's brilliant. And it's, it, it makes so much sense. I'm glad you brought up the Indiana Jones cue because that is one of my favorite cues to begin with. I think that's set the stage for a lot of the cue design we see today. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, that challenge of, of designing an attraction, essentially a quarter of a mile, you know, away from yeah. the, from Adventureland, yeah. how do you solve that with this, this long intricate queue is great. Um, but you know, the, one of the things I wanted to talk about with Indiana Jones adventure and with star tours is uh, of course, coming from the same, the same space coming from Lucasfilm being properties that weren't direct at the time, at least directly owned by Disney, but sort of licensed out. And these are, in many ways, these two also kind of set up, I feel, this new approach to storytelling where you take worlds that exist in films, like in Indiana Jones and in Star Wars, but you don't just retell the film, but you almost create a new experience within that world. Um, so how did you go about, because I feel like this was really the first time it was done to this level of, of taking an existing story, but carving out a new story in those you know, fantasy worlds? Well, I think, you know, it goes back to, again, being a guest as a child at Disneyland and then being a, an operator. Uh, the guests kind of come because we put them in the starring roles of these things, I think in the best experiences. There are book report attractions, and I could cite those, but I won't, uh, where you just watch the characters from the film have their adventure and they're tasteful and they're dull. Uh, it's best when, you know, Peter Pan, the, I use this a lot, so you've got it on a million recordings, but, you know, the line when you are dispatched into the Peter Pan is like, come on, everybody, here we go. And then you sail out of Irland and you sail off to Neverland. So that's kind of in the back of my mind that if you're doing Star Tours or you're doing Indiana Jones, uh, this is a chance not for you to be Indiana Jones, but to go on an adventure where it's happening to you. You're not watching Indy do it. Um, you're a part of it. So if Indy's hanging there in desperation, he's yelling at you to get the Jeep up close enough so he can jump down in with you. And, uh, and I think we were able to do that. And it's hard because in the ideal world, everyone would be a video gamer and capable of doing the action at uh, an expert pace. But the reality is you look at the Disneyland audience, it's old, young, it's four years, four-year-olds, it's grandma and grandpa, and their ability to participate uh, or their willingness or enjoyment in participating is all over the map. So like with Star Tours, I think the breakthrough was to say, no, it's not a recruiting um, for the, you know, the, for the resistance. Uh, it is actually a bus terminal, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's an intergalactic bus terminal at Disneyland that takes people to the Ewok villages, which would be kind of a 22nd to third century ride, I suppose, where you'd go to see Ewoks or you'd ski on Hoth or whatever. So you get people friendly in that with the, the call outs and things that are happening in that queue. You know, Star Speeder 302 is now ready for boarding to Hoth. And here's an ad for skiing on Hoth and all these things. So you, every, we know 100% of the people in that queue are comfortable with this framing up device. And so the whole thing of loading into the seats, it's all very similar to boarding an airplane or a bus or whatever. And then once we get into it and Star Tours created what is now the cliche 
of as soon as you get everybody comfortable through that point, then something goes horribly wrong and the pilot isn't adapted, you know, going into the wars and we don't, we're hanging on for dear life, but it's all happening to us. It isn't like you're watching Luke and, and Han do their thing. And I remember when Mark Hamill wrote it with his children, when we had it in test up at Imagineering and the kids were only like five or four at the time. And I remember after it was over, they were sitting with their dad in the seats, you know, and they go, daddy, did we really go on this? You know, <laughs> the only way they'd seen their father was up there, you know, in, on the screen while everybody was sitting back, but you know, their dad was with them and it was happening to them. And so I thought that was really a testament to uh, how well that worked. And you couldn't have done Indiana Jones if you hadn't done Star Tours because it proved out the, the, the world that we are now dealing with in simulation uh, motion rather than in uh, a, a vehicle rolling over a track per se. Yes, Indy goes on a track, but it's smooth as glass. Um, there isn't a bump on it. And so everything that you feel is programmed by an artist, you know, putting it in just like the music. And, uh, and so it was an outgrowth of coming off of Star Tours and being able to throw you into an environment. And once again, you look at, we can anticipate there's gonna be an hour long wait. And you go, why on earth would I wait an hour to do this? You know, I try to think about that. And I said, well, if the reward was eternal youth or riches beyond belief or future knowledge of the future, you'd have a, a site that would rival all the religious sites in the world, you know, where people go to make pil pilgrimages. Um, you know, to get one of those things. And then we had to think backwards to create a way of never giving those things away, <laughs> you know, like, so you will get them if you don't look at the eyes of our, our God Mara. So um, of course, every single person in the vehicle is staring right at it, <laughs> you know, so we've fortunately never had to give away anything uh, to this point. So, you know, I think there's a real important thing of not creating such a complex backstory where you're, you, I've been on these things. Again, I won't give, I'll make one up of like where so-and-so's uncle created the machine that you're about to go in. And it was a thing that allowed him to go back in time. And now we're going to take that machine and put it through the third dimension to get us back into a thing <laughs> like that. And while you're back there, be sure and pick up one of these things that you can bring it back. And if we get it here and you're sitting there, the, the audience isn't listening. <laughs> They've dialed out. They're just going, I wonder if it's going to be scary. I wonder if this is going to happen. And you've got to kind of, pull back, not to what you'd love to do, but getting to the point that you know the majority of the audience will go with this. They'll buy into everything here. They'll enjoy it. They can find things in it every time they go that are different. Uh, but it isn't so overwhelming that by the time you finish the pre-show, you go, I have heard that till I'm sick of it, you know, and I know we're not going to, we need your help. You know, that's the one I love. No, I'm going to be sitting there with a lap bar on you know, <laughs> and with a restraint and all this stuff. So you don't need my help. So you've got to create a thing that um, throws it back at the guests in a, in a way that they can go along with it and they're not being forced to fake to, you know, get into pretending so much that you go, this is just silly, you know. And uh, so I think I can look back and say, I think we've done a good job on the ones um, that I'm proud of that uh, do that, that 
with big thunder, you know, the thing goes out of control and you're hanging on for dear life. That's a pretty simple premise, but it's happening to you. And it doesn't feel like you're up on a roller coaster track looking down at steel. Um, you are in canyons that are too narrow and too dark and too small. Um, and there's a joy in that of like surviving it, I guess. And it does have that balance between reality and then something that you can't do anywhere else. And a friend of mine coined the phrase that fear minus death equals thrill. And I think you look to names like Disney as allowing you to tempt fate a little bit, but you, you trust them so much that nothing's ever going to happen. So, uh, you know, it gives your brain that need for adrenaline, but at the same time, uh, so many people can do it. Uh, finally, they would do it. And uh, then they'd say, I can't believe I did it. It was really fun and nothing bad happened to me. And I'm now on the other side. I, I survived, you know, and this, so there's a, a tremendous uh, conquering thing that comes from that, that makes people proud again of themselves for doing, participating in something they were afraid of. They did it. They survived. They're now a better person for the, they've seen something they dreamed about. Um, so again, it, it, it keeps it happening to you rather than like say a pat it's not necessarily a passive ride but a ride where you're not involved because even the jungle cruise a day one attraction the hippos attacking you the elephants are spraying you with water um so you know it was in that same you know in the embryonic stages of virtual reality you know it's a virtually real jungle that you go into and a lot of the things that you'll see and do in there are happening to you specifically not to a third person character. Makes so much sense. Uh, so think, thinking about one of the, all, a lot of the attractions that you developed, there's more than one, right? If you think about, and this is not unique to, to your attractions, of course, going back, there's multiple parts of the Caribbean, there's multiple haunted mansions. And in, in your case with things like Thunder Mountain and, and Star Tours and um, Indiana Jones Adventure, there's multiple variations of this. And when you look to go from that first version and say, this is a success and then build it somewhere else, how do you decide what elements remain the same and what elements are modified to create a unique experience somewhere else? Well, it's usually not the show itself because if you're duplicating a show, it's because it was good enough to do that. It's sort of a classic that you need to have in the park. Uh, what really dictates the changes are the sites and the cultures maybe if it's international. So you, you take a look at Paris where, um, you know, we had a cultural thing, we had a climate thing, we had a technology thing because the difference between 1992 and 1979 was, um, you know, almost 15 years. And so, you know, things like Big Thunder, you know, we could do more with it at that point. We could also, in California and in Florida, it was the last thing added to Frontierland. So it was taking over leftover space or available back in the far corner space. When you're building a park like Disneyland Paris, if this is the number one Frontierland attraction, let's put it in the middle, right in the center. And then that gave us the opportunity of diving under the rivers of America to get there because it sits where Tom Sawyer's Island is in our parks in the States. So to get to it, you have to dive below the draft of the Mark Twain or the riverboats. 
And it provides, especially on the way back, the scariest moment in the entire ride. You know? so, <laughs> uh, there's no question the one in Paris is, from a thrill standpoint, just stupendous. It's my favorite. And, uh, it's amazing. That was, again, mostly due to um, the, the site, the ability to make it a day one attraction instead of the last piece in uh, a frontier land. Um, and then uh, other things, again, as technology uh, comes along, like if you look at the upgrades on Star Tours, the original was done with models in the same way that the first you know films were made. Uh, and now with a branching attraction that's in there and it's in 3D and um, it's all digital, you know, creation, you can, there's no limit to what uh, you can conjure up for that ride. Um, and you're not carrying a 70 millimeter projector on board with 70 millimeter wide film running that show, which how we did that. And it was subject to all the rocking and rolling that uh, that did in, in 1970. 87 um, is amazing, you know, but now you wouldn't go that route. You'd go with technology that gives you the ability to do far, far more. So, you know, there's a case of technology. There were other reasons like not doing a jungle cruise in, in uh, uh, Paris because we literally canvassed uh, the theme parks in Europe and found three jungle cruises that had everything from the rhino, you know, pushing the guys up the pool to the elephant bathing pool the hippos with the wiggling ears and everything. And I remember Michael Eisner said, we can't do a jungle cruise uh, because it'll just appear that we copied whatever park, you know, that has this thing for five or 10 years. And then the other part of that was the, that there are five languages that are commonly spoken in the continent in Europe. So, you know, anything that's language intensive, we were trying to shy away from. So, you know, uh, it's never, occasionally you get to add a plus, you know, because, you know, I never liked that we had to do this on the first one. So we're going to, you know, going to add something better uh, on this one. But most of the time it's um, because of the, the situations that crop up, you know, I think on Main Street in Paris, uh, we had the budget to cover it like we did in Tokyo, because you have a environment, again, a climate situation here where it's, it can rain or snow about half the year or more, unlike Florida. And well, it does rain almost half of the year in Florida. <laughs> but, you know, people go outside during the rain in Florida and in, in Paris, it's cold rain and snow. And so the, we were very much encouraged to cover Main Street. But then if you go and study the people, so here you have a climate problem, you study the people, all the French cafes are out on the sidewalk. Nobody eats inside unless they have to. So there, there's got to be a social thing about uh, sitting in the sunshine, sitting in the open air. If you can do it, they want it. So we corrected right away and didn't cover Main Street. We put two arcades behind Main Street that provide the throughput under rain conditions, under snow conditions. Uh, or even under parade conditions, which is great because you can go back there and get around the main street parades. But uh, it's it far more satisfactory for that environment. Whereas the covered main street in Tokyo, where you've got a highly motivated merchandising uh, audience, where each home, family member has to take home gifts for their second cousins and third cousins and whatnot. It's just part of the culture and those shops on Main Street need to operate constantly and uh, are such high volume that to have it 
hindered by snow and rain and monsoons and everything would be not good. So there's a change where uh, it was due to the inclement weather and the spending patterns of the audience versus France where they could care less about souvenirs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love all the differences between the different parks and Paris in particular. It's beautiful. As I said, Thunder Mountain there is, is by far, you can tell the extra lengths of making it that central point in Frontierland and, and that those tunnels are uh, you know, as much as you see them in video, they are, which it's hard to see in the dark, but yeah. it's a lot faster in person. When you, oh, when you yeah. first go in, you're like, whoa, this is way yeah, faster right. than I thought it was going to be. Uh, so it's, it's well, a really, fun, really it, fun one. If you were, if you were, you know, Walt had the uh, advantage of putting Disneyland in a American, and it was primarily an American cultural phenomena, Disneyland. So the nuances of the West could be Kentucky for Davy Crockett. They could be Zorro in the Southwest. They could be, uh, you know, the, the the St. Louis with the Golden Horseshoe, perhaps, and anything you wanted. You, because we're sensitive enough to our uh, cultural history to accept all those things. But now you go uh, outside of America and you find there's a what I'd call a John Wayne, John Ford West that took place in Monument Valley, and anything that get, is, gets off of that is kind of so nuanced that it doesn't really make sense. So purifying Frontierland for, um, you know, for, for Paris meant that the Haunted Mansion had to reflect the gold rush culture of Big Thunder in the center and the Southwest desert uh, atmosphere. And so there's a harmony over there that you read instantly that uh, plays really well to diverse cultures that uh, come view America as kind of simplified. Oh yeah, that's where uh, the Native Americans and John Wayne and all of that, that's what it looks like. And their dream of coming to America is to see the Grand Canyon, that part of it, the, the whole nuance thing about Kentucky and Tennessee and uh, the Midwest and all that, that's, that's sort of blurry and a little bit more European looking, you know? So, um, you know, so that's what we did. We chose to uh, kind of create a, a a monolithic, if you will, frontier land there. And you can tell when you go there that that, <clears throat> that was definitely the approach. Um, and it, it just, it makes sense to adjust based on those yeah. different cultures. Yeah. Um, one more fun thing I wanted to ask and then and a couple of, of wrap-up questions was about vehicles because I find that in Disney, and Disney's been getting even better at this um, as time has gone on, the vehicles are more than just a conveyance, but part of the story. They're they're also, in many ways, I feel like, especially with an attraction like Indiana Jones Adventure, I feel like the vehicle has its own personality. It has its yeah. own life to it. And I think yeah. the first time I really felt that was when I was riding for the first time, you passed by the the giant snake and it yeah. feels like the car is freaking out. Yeah, um, right. So that just yeah. adds to that suspense of, of, oh my gosh, we've really got to get away from here. Um, how do you infuse personality into a ride vehicle? Well, let me give a few examples. Growing up as a child, I remember when uh, they opened Alice in Wonderland with the caterpillars and the, it's this healthy <laughs> kind of caterpillar uh, kind of escorting you through this wacky world of Alice. Now this is back before they couldn't make that vehicle do much, but it did go up and down over all the leaves and watching that outside, like there are caterpillars going in down there and caterpillars are coming out up here. 
Uh, it was definitely a character of that ride, you know, and probably one of the motivators to ride it, you know, because I want to get in that caterpillar. That's <laughs> so true. People to see um, another one. It's not a ride vehicle, but it talks to your point uh, that revolutionized kind of malls and everything else in America and around the world was Mark Fuller developed the leapfrog fountain for journey into imagination, where a staple of life, water, which we use to drink and bathe in and swim in and everything else, uh, suddenly became a living character in that thing where you watch the kids watching it leap around and they're saying, I think it's gonna go over there next. No, I'm gonna catch it. I'm gonna catch it. <laughs> These are all things you don't talk about water. You talk about characters and, and, and little creatures and things. And they were having as much fun with that as butterflies and, and birds and all kinds of things. And it was water. And I remember when it was thought of as water, the operators were saying, everyone's gonna get wet, they're gonna slip, they're gonna, all of these things about the way you think of water. But as soon as it was recharacterized as a character, uh, it suddenly became this fun thing that there's no way in earth we, they'd shut it off, you know, because it's just, uh, it became actually, I think Time Magazine said, a runaway hit at the new Epcot are these leaping fountains that you know, <laughs> follow all around. And still today. Yeah, and they're all over the world. So then you go on to star tours where you introduce the ability to not just follow the track, but to uh, feel Luke Skywalker's experience going down into the death run on the uh, Death Star, uh, you know, where he kind of made that curve and then it kind of leveled out like that. Uh, and seeing that in the movie theater, eating my popcorn, I thought, how would that feel to get the G-force and then kind of walk back and forth as you're going down the canyon? And we, you know, we all felt that. And I remember I said to Tom, write a line in there that says, I've always wanted to do this for Rex, our pilot. And so as soon as you go through that, go, I've always wanted to do this because every single person in the, uh, in the ride is thinking that, you know, so <laughs> that introduction there led to, you know, Indiana Jones, which was the breakthrough. And, you know, it's funny how you, you have to start with enough for the audience to believe in that vehicle. So if I turned off the soundtrack, it's dead silent, not dead silent, but you'd hear a very whiny electric engine are going, you know, and so, no, when you start, you're, you know, and the whole thing. And, and when it, you know, dies down in the, in the dark rat area and stuff, you hear all this stuff. And so that, you know, that whole thing has to start the ride. But before, right at the point when you make the bad decision and look into the eyes, we decided to drop the motorized, motorized pretty much out and pick up the Indiana Jones score. Because as soon as something's happened to you and you've gone from, oh, we're riding on a standard Disney ride to, oh my God, this thing just whipped out of control and we've looked into the eyes and they're gonna be after us. And then you start that you know, and all of a sudden you're into a musically scored ride vehicle, which doesn't make any sense in the world. <laughs> and if you'd started it when we go, okay, are your seatbelts fastened and blah, blah, blah. And okay, have a good ride. Dun, 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 dun. That wouldn't have worked. You got it's fake. It's fake. So again, it gets back to that initial question you had. How do you create something that is enough to be believable? So it's got to start with the old falling apart engine and undergoing the gear grinds as you go up the hill and everything. 
And then somewhere as soon as you've taken over being engaged in the ride and it's happening to you, you need that Hollywood score to tell you how to brace emotionally. And you're not even thinking about the score if we brought it in at the right point, because it's what we've been brought up on watching TV and watching uh, motion pictures that, you know, fantasy life is scored, you know, and from James Bond on down, we can all do the riffs on those scores because they give us the emotional backing that we need. And I would say in a case with Indiana Jones and anything written by John Williams, it's so strong that it's probably one of the most important cues that um, accompany one of these experiences. And it has to be there or it'd be wrong. I used to say, what if we made it Kentucky Buck? You know, it wouldn't have cost us a penny. We wouldn't have, at that time, we weren't, uh, we weren't uh, part of Luke. Lucasfilm wasn't a part of Disney. Uh, so we, we, we paid a good amount of money to get the rights to use those attractions. But, um, you know, you could have done it for free because, I mean, the ride system and all that we developed. Kentucky Bucks Adventure. But I think the falseness of people sitting down going, this is a ripoff of an Indiana <laughs> Jones thing. It's just a ripoff, you know. And how many parks did that? Because they couldn't afford to pay that. So you can probably go around the world and find eight or nine Jeep rides where you go into temples or mummies or whatever, and you have, uh, you know, some never heard before score. But, you know, all of that authenticity to artificiality as well as reality uh, is how you end up with something that, you know, becomes a classic, I think. And it certainly is. Um, it, it definitely is a classic. And you're right. It's if it were an Indiana Jones, it would feel a little bit like a ripoff. Um, yeah, exactly. But it's just it's perfect the way that it is. But if you'd um, ever told me that we were going to be part, that the Lucasfilm and all those uh, you know properties would be part of Disney, no way. That just was <laughs> not possible. You know, it just never happened. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's awesome that it's now officially part of uh, a part yeah. of Disney. Um, few few questions to wrap up. First, just thinking about the fact that Disneyland has been around for even longer. But Walt Disney World's been around now for fifty years. Um, the parks are, if not as popular, more popular than ever. And they continue, we continue to see all this attendance at the parks and it's transcended generations. Um, what do you think are some of the qualities that have kept Disney this popular for this long or even rising popularity? Um, or maybe another way to think about it is how will Disney ensure that it remains this popular for the next 50 years? Like what are some of those foundational things that are so crucial to um, to the Disney parks being so popular? Well, let's just miss the one that we've covered a lot today, which is that there's this combination of fantasy environments that are extremely believable. And if you get people to that point where they so badly want to invest in this to have this experience that's so real to them, then that's a good guarantee. Now, do we still do it all the time? Yes and no. Uh, you know, I can, I don't want to point out, you know, the yeses and the nos, but I think, you know, when you go through one and you go, I cannot believe they built this, all of the things you've been talking about. I think the, the second thing is the term I really like, aspirational. Um, there's something about flying out of a child's bedroom window that Ray Bradbury coined when he wrote Walt a note after writing Peter Pan. And he said, 
Well, I'll be eternally right. I will be eternally grateful. Today, I flew out of a child's bedroom window, out of her moonlit London, in a pirate galleon on my way to the stars. Okay, it's in a building probably about the size of a normal house, you know, <laughs> home. It's all black light and really convoluted and everything. But your mind so wants that aspirational goal. We've dreamed since we were children of flying up out of our beds and flying away and then you wake up and you go, that didn't happen, you know, it was not <laughs> true. So like you, you look at it and you go, what compels an audience in a park that's over 60 years old to wait in line 40 minutes to go on something they've gone on since they were born, you know, and their parents went on before they were born. Uh, and I think it's that, that it never grows stale, that aspirational aspect of, lifting up out of that bedroom and flying out on an adventure uh, that's happening to you. You're really up there in the air above these things happening. So I think aspiration is, an, is another really strong part of it. And the third one that I think we've got to be very careful about because we're letting the backstories become more important than the personal story. Uh, it's never as much fun to witness somebody else having their adventure as it is having your own adventure. And so uh, I, it's something that says, let me tell you about you know, what happened to so-and-so. It's gonna be a fun time while we, while we remember that this is where they did this and they did that and da-da-da. Uh, comparing that to a Peter Pan or a Mr. Toad, where you jump in a, a motor car and you careen out of control, busting everything in the house, <laughs> destroying half of London town, and then going into a courtroom where you're sentenced to prison and you break out of prison to be run over by a train and end up in hell. Now, that was done for 1955 opening at Disneyland. It is not the theme or the story. It is not the storyline of the animated film. I don't know who came up with it. Even Claude Coates couldn't. Uh, tell me exactly how they settled on that environment, but I'm really glad they did because it is something that is so outrageously crazy and faced with um, the task of bringing Winnie the Pooh to Disneyland after they had brought it to Florida by taking out the toad ride. And in California, I was given one of those, you know, wise old Solomon uh, things like, what are we going to do? And I realized we had a better band in Florida remaining and we have one in Tokyo and Disneyland sort of sits in the middle between those two sites. And I thought, uh, if I agree to take out the last toad ride remaining, then there are none in anywhere in the world to go to. And so I faced the wrath of millions of fans who were mad at me for taking out the country bears at Disneyland. But um, I'm just of the feeling that that attraction that is so wildly unpredictable for the Disney company to have built it in the first <laughs> place. Uh, and it's so much fun for kids, you know, to go on this thing. And it's a completely out of control experience uh, that we don't have in any other form. So um, I'm, I'm glad that I left it there. I will defend why I did it. I wish I didn't have to do it. I wish the money was there to do them both, you know, keep the country bears and keep and put in a, a new uh, Winnie the Pooh ride. But, um, you know, those are the kind of decisions that are hard. Uh, and, and you just, you, you have, you know, just your own thought process of how much that ride meant to me as a child and how it kind of defies what Disney is. And, and that brings me to the final thing. 
the diversity of what Disney is. And that's an overused word. I'm using it in terms of that in one park in California, you can see the president of the United States speak to the people about very important things to keep our, our, our country whole. And then ride a Dumbo ride, you know, around in circles and then go to the North Pole or under the water through Finding Nemo in a submarine. Those are probably three of the most uh, discordant things one could ever imagine to be in an amusement park, you know. And yet they really hold the values of what Disneyland is at its extremes, you know. If you brought it all down to being 3D movies and nice little packaged, you know, four minute rides and theater shows and whatnot, um, it would be far less than this very diverse thing that it is by keeping things that maybe are inefficient. Like the, the submarine to maintain that is very difficult. It's underwater, you have to use divers, it's got a cast member on every boat. But you say for that inefficiency, we have something else like a Snow White ride that's very efficient. And you balance that, you don't say both of them need to be efficient. If somewhere in the middle, you've got what is right. And this one can be kept because it's feeding off of the savings that come from the other one, then that creates a park that's extraordinarily diverse and um, has values and meanings for a lot of people, you know? So I'm always um, uh, on guard, you know, when they, they do the thing, like if we remove that, it's not very popular, blah, blah, blah. And you go, but then it really reduces the diversity of what our product is. It would be real easy to say that in an environment of thrill rides and, and fun experiences that an American adventure and a, a Hall of Presidents and a great moments with Mr. Lincoln are poorly attended in relation to that. But I can tell you that for the guests that go to those things, it is the cornerstone of what happened on their day there and bringing their family together to hear an experience like that and to see it, uh, they have a greater sense of doing something wonderful for their children. So I'm always on guard fighting to keep that pushed back to the limits. <laughs> I'm glad that you are because on, on social media, at least to the best of my ability and through this show, I advocate for the same thing, going to see all those attractions that are beyond the ones you see in promos for visiting Walt Disney yeah. World and Disneyland. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> even beyond the Space Mountains, you know, the, yeah. the, sec the American Adventures are, are so an attraction I do about every time I go to Epcot. Um, but the diversity, that, that diversity is such an important I was, piece. I was down there this week and I, like you, I, I go, before I leave, I have to go and do the American Adventure. So we're in there. This was last um, Saturday. So it's coming to the finale, big emotional moment at the end with a golden dream. Up comes the shot of 9-11 and it suddenly dawned on me, this is 9-11, I am in here. And I just welled up, you know, I just said, I am so glad. I didn't think about it. I was here at Disney World having a wonderful time. But the poignancy of that moment in that theater, I go, that makes me feel I did something to remember on this important anniversary day, you know, so there you are. That part wells me up every time to begin with. So I can only imagine on 9-11 on, uh, on yeah. itself, that's an added, that's an added yeah. layer. Um, my last question for you, Tony, is about ambition, because you talked about that earlier, but I'm going to talk about it in a different sense, because, or ask about it in a different sense, because a lot of listeners aspire to be Imagineers, 
And the common question asked, and I've asked this to every Imagineer, is is you know how do you what's your advice for getting into Imagineering? But I'm going to ask a, a, a different question because <laughs> I think it should be beyond just getting into Imagineering, but thinking about how to maintain, like you, a career at Imagineering. Um, so assuming you've gotten the job in Imagineering, how do you maintain or build your career and ensure that you stay, if that's your choice, um, to remain and become a successful Imagineer? Well, you've just knocked out the hardest part of that question so (laughs) that I don't have to go into that again. And you can find that on about every single thing I've ever done. (laughs) I knew it was out there in many forms, so I didn't want to ask the same old question again. (laughs) Uh, When I get to that next part of it, which is once you've gotten in the door and you've landed somewhere, probably because they looked at what you had to offer and you filled a entry-level need uh, because you had a good portfolio or you had good background in your previous jobs to fill in engineering or, you know, whatever skill set it is, but that isn't your dream of where you want to end up. You are here, like I was at Carnation scooping ice cream, not because I wanted to learn how to cook hamburgers for the Carnation company. I was only there because it was in Disneyland. That was the only reason I was there scooping ice cream. Uh, going to Baskin Robbins to scoop ice cream, no way. Um, so once you're in, it's up to you to really size up what's going on and learn how to both do two things. You can move horizontally, which is probably more easily attainable, and then accelerate upwards once you've moved over horizontally or you know diagonally if you're lucky. Um, and in some cases, you might even decide to go down backwards to get over into a better area. I've literally, I've had people that took a a wage cut to get into another division uh, because they felt they could show their value once they got there. You've got to determine like, am I in a role where I'm fulfilling a need, I'm making widgets and there's no opportunity for me to show that my widgets are better than any other widgets. They're just simply widgets. Then you're probably not in a career path, you're more in a, uh, a a job role. So if you've got a career path, you've got to like set your sights on people that are doing sort of the things that you would like to be assigned with. And you start making friends with them. And you start, you know, like, could I pick your brain? Could I take you to lunch? I really am amazed by your career and so forth. And I've had people do that with me. I've got a very good friend now who's in the engineering side, who's doing really, really well. He's a very good, personable person. So it's been easy for him to uh, approach people like myself. <clears throat> I met him on a ride at Florida at, at our the other company's parks, um, <laughs> Universal. And he said, oh, I saw your lecture yesterday over at Disney and what do you have advice? And so I gave him the how to get in advice and in the runtime of the Hogwarts Express, actually, and then figured I'll never see this person again. Cut to six months later, hired an Imagineering uh, and then come to my office and uh, we hit it off. We love movies and one thing led to another. And I've given him lots of advice on... um, you know, threading his way through. And he's in a very good position. He's not a designer. He'll never be that, but he definitely wanted to add to the creativity rather than just being a scheduler or an engineering layout of the time frame for different jobs and so forth. Um, 
and then, like I say, um, when you are looking at a company that's like going into China, as we were 10 years ago, I would say to you, whether you're an engineer, writer, or an, an artist, you'd say, okay, that's what I do. And oh, by the way, I'm fluent in Mandarin Chinese, you know, and, and then you, you realize you just weeded out, you know, 75% of your competition, you know, in art or in engineering, because they're thinking right away, okay, that eliminates another position that we don't have to worry about. Maybe he can do translating for everyone on the team, you know, so you're always got to keep your, uh, your eyes and ears on all the things that are not you know, in your little window frame that are going on there that you could suddenly bring in and uh, uh, attach them to your value and then put yourself in a light that exceeds the others that would be vying for the same thing. It's no easy task. And like for me who grew up in a, an analog trained world, uh, it's now a total digitally um, you know, even working at home now has become kind of normal there. And so uh, the camaraderie, the interface of seeing all the Imagineers every day and saying, oh, that idea that you were working on, how's that going? Because I remember getting uh, out of my hole, which was working in the model shop as a uh, cutting out with a mat knife, you know, facades and stuff. And I went in and saw there was bringing all the Snow White stuff out of the, um, the uh, archives at the studio. Uh, from the movie and what's this for i say to the guy in there he said oh claude Coates is going to be working on the snow white ride so i got bold enough to walk into claude's office and say oh i i see you're going to be working on the snow white ride and you know just i want you to keep my name there if you would you know i'd love to work with you on it oh okay well i'll think about that when it comes up you know and the next thing I know, I've been called by my boss that Claude wants you to work with him on the thing. But that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have risked going into his office and being a little bit pushy and saying, but if you think about being on his side, would you rather have someone assigned to your project that you don't know, or someone that walked in and gave you all these reasons why they would love to work with you on this project? Oh, it's a no-brainer. That's the answer. You know? Yeah. Well, that's great advice. <laughs> Lots of great nuggets of information. Um, and it all comes back again to, uh, we started and ended with persistence and, and yeah. getting into where you want to go, where you want to be and, and where you want to go. So your career certainly is a testament to that. Um, but it has uh, definitely been a pleasure, Tony, chatting with you about, we could have spoken for hours, but you have so many interviews out there. So I wanted to ask some slightly yeah. different questions and and look at things from a different take. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat sure. with me and uh, share all these awesome stories about your many years at Imagineering. All right. This has been really fun. And it's a lovely day outside still here in California. So I'll go out and get some rays. <laughs> <laughs> with that, we close out episode 115 of the Imagineer podcast. I hope you enjoyed this really incredible discussion. And I want to give a very special thank you to Tony once again for taking the time to talk about 
your history and your career at Walt Disney Imagineering and all of these incredible creations. I certainly learned a few new things about your time at Disney, and I had such a blast getting the opportunity to chat with you. Of course, I want to turn this conversation over to you, the listener, and hear which of Tony Baxter's many attractions or lands or parks that he's contributed to the Walt Disney Company is your favorite. You can send me your answers and feedback, as always, in so many different ways, and I would encourage you to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn at Imagineer Podcast, on Twitter at Imagineer News, and you can also join our Facebook group, which is the Imagination, also called the Imagineer Podcast Disney Fan Community, to chat about this subject and other topics related to the show and all things Disney with me and other listeners of this community. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show, of course, make sure to hit that subscribe or follow button, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or any other podcast app, which will ensure that you are the first to know when new podcast episodes become available. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating and a review in the Apple Podcast Store, that does a lot to help us out, helps to grow our reputation within the Disney podcast community. And I want to thank the more than 550 of you who have left a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. I sincerely appreciate it. And I do read each and every review that I get. So I am, again, so incredibly grateful to those of you who have rated the show. But the best thing you could do for the show is very, very simple. And that's just to share it. Whether you share out this episode with Tony Baxter or any other episode of the show, or simply share out our content, even if you just talk about imagine your podcast with your disney friends and family it really goes a long way to help the show out and continues to help us to build our community of optimistic family-friendly welcoming disney fans i also want to announce that if you've considered our patreon group before you should definitely take a look at it now because we have recently revamped our patreon membership which you can learn more about over at patreon.com slash imagineer podcast links are also available at imagineerpodcast.com but patreon is a way that you can help to support the show financially and in return you get special perks benefits and rewards things like early access to every podcast episode bonus podcast episodes just for patreon members access to a private facebook community plus lots of bonus content available on patreon my favorite part is our virtual events including our weekly disney plus watch parties which have been an incredible way to gather together in a virtual sense to watch our favorite films together and you can learn all about the perks and benefits because they are subject to change and see what's currently available and all about our new revamped patreon system by heading to patreon.com slash imagineer podcast i would also encourage you to check out our partners first take a look at the kingdom insider over at thekingdominsider.com and the kingdom insider on your favorite social media channels to get the latest disney news about all things happening in the world of disney and the next time you're ready to visit walt disney world or disneyland or any disney destination definitely take a look at our travel partner academy travel you can get free quote from academy travel by clicking on the links in the show notes below or by heading to imagineerpodcast.com clicking on the travel drop down and selecting your destination if you fill out that form they will get back to you as soon as possible with a free quote for your next disney vacation and they are diamond earmarked which is the highest level of distinction that disney bestows upon travel agencies so i definitely recommend checking them out 
last but not least, I want to encourage you, as always, to go after your hopes, your dreams, your goals, whatever they might be, especially now thinking about the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. There's been so much that even Disney has accomplished, Walt Disney World specifically, over the last 50 years. So we can thank Tony Baxter for many of those contributions, and it's a good opportunity for us to gather together as Disney fans and think about what kind of legacy we want to leave behind as well. And remember, as always, that inspiring quote from Horizons. If you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. Please stay seated until the transport comes to a complete stop.